Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, last night's Emmys reflected both industry progress and the work still left to be done, with all major acting awards going to white actors, despite a historically diverse field of nominees from a broad range of boundary-pushing shows. In a new cover story for The Atlantic, Hannah Georges looks at what it's taken to get shows that look more like America, specifically black America, on television. From Sanford and Son to today's Insecure, documenting the history and experiences of black writers in predominantly white writers' rooms. We'll talk to Georges about whether the tide is really turning in Hollywood when it comes to diverse representation, not only in the stories we tell, but who's telling them. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Remember A Different World from the late 80s and 90s? The Cosby Show spinoff about students at the fictional, historically black college, Hillman. I know my parents loved me. It's where a lot of black writers and showrunners got their start. It led to Family Matters and Living Single, Sister Sister and Moesha. My next guest, Hannah Georges, grew up on those 90s shows. And in a cover story for The Atlantic, looks at what it took to get them on television, why they disappeared in the early 2000s, and the treacherous terrain black writers had to and continue to navigate to feature accurate stories for black-led casts. Hannah Georges, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. And the example you opened your Atlantic piece with really does encapsulate the kinds of issues and biases Black writers, and especially those in the 90s, had to confront when writing sitcoms about Black people that had white showrunners. Your example to start the piece is from the show Family Matters, which a lot of people might remember for Jaleel White's character, Steve Urkel. But can you just (laughs) remind us what Family Matters is about? 
Sure. So Family Matters is about a black family, a black middle class family in Chicago. Um, and the sort of patriarch of the family is Carl Winslow, who's this lovable police officer. Um, and he lives with his wife and his teenage children and um, doesn't technically live with Urkel, but Urkel certainly <laughs> makes his presence known in the house. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you really home in on one scene from an episode that aired in, in 1994, which I want to play for listeners now. It's a scene that, as you write, Carl Winslow's teenage son, Eddie, uh, storms into the house, visibly upset about a run-in with the police. Dad, we got to talk. Edward, what's the matter? I got pulled over by the cops. Did you get a ticket? Well, yeah, but it wasn't my fault. No buts, Edward. I warned you. Now hand over your license. You're not going to even hear me out? Eddie, what was the ticket for? Failure to signal. I got a ticket once. Did you know the sidewalk isn't a passing lane? <laughs> Eddie, tell us exactly what happened. Okay. I was on my way to a party in Burlington Heights. I was driving along, minding my own business, when the cops pulled me over. Did they ask you for your license and registration? Yeah. Then I asked what the problem was, and one of them told me to shut up. Then he made me get out of the car and lie face down. Then he cuffed me. That's unusual procedure. Unless you provoked it. But I didn't. People were driving by looking at me like I was a criminal, and I didn't even do anything. Son, are you absolutely sure? Dad, the only reason they pulled me over is because I was a black guy in a white neighborhood. Ooh. Carl, this is frightening. If it happened. Dad! Well, son, you lied about your last speeding ticket. How do I know that you're not doing it again? Do you think I would lie about something like this? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to check it out. I hope you do. Don't worry, Edward, I will. That's a scene from Family Matters back in 1994. Hannah Georges, you were able to talk with Felicia Henderson, a junior writer on Family Matters at the time. What did you learn about what happened in the writer's room as that scene was being conceived? Yeah, Felicia spoke pretty candidly about the experience of hearing that proposed and sort of laid out in that way. And saying, you know, that that line um, where Carl says, you know, um, that's unusual procedure unless you provoked it felt right. strange to her. It felt wrong to her. Um, and she spoke up and said, you know, well, no black father would tell his black son that, right? This is a police officer, yes, but he's also a black man in America and understands that routine traffic stops for black people of all ages um, can go can go wrong in all, in all sorts of ways for reasons that are not necessarily about your behavior. Um, and when she said that, when she sort of pushed back against the line, she said the room got silent um, and it was clear that she had offended the white writers in the room and that they thought or that they internalized her critique as her saying that they were racist. And she was trying to say, no, I'm saying that the scene itself is not realistic. And what's so interesting right. is to even do a show like that, right? I remember the sitcoms, whenever you touched on issues that were considered sensitive or taboo, it was always like this very special episode, like we're about to do a very <laughs> right. special episode for you today. <laughs> Just to get it on was a success, but then to get it on in that way, she called her experience of being a writer negotiated authenticity. Can yeah. you explain what negotiated <laughs> authenticity means? 
Yeah, I, she describes it as the experience of, you know, black writers being brought into a writer's room or being brought onto any type of creative project, really, um, to sort of rubber stamp a storyline that has to do with blackness, right? But only doing so within um, the parameters of what feels comfortable to white power brokers, right? It's, yes, be black. Yes, tell us what's real, but only do it in this way that we're comfortable with and stop right there. And, you know, you sort of don't have um, real institutional power to push back against things that feel wrong. I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. I want to ask you listeners if there is a TV sitcom that these shows that uh, we're talking about are bringing up for you and also if you have any thoughts on negotiated authenticity whether or not you've ever felt like you've had to perform that you can call us at 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum you can email us forum at kqed.org that negotiation, Hannah Georges, has shifted a lot over the years, as you say. For example, you write that 50 years ago, just getting black characters on TV was a hurdle, and there were very few black screenwriters in, in the room. The show concepts were really prescripted, and they were determined by white executives. But then you point out the Cosby show comes along. <laughs> Can you talk about how and why the Cosby show was able to present a different idea of a black family than what white executives often deemed, quote, realistic, as you said in your piece. Right. Well, some of that was just the star power of Bill Cosby as a comedian himself. He had been an actor um, in the 60s drama I Spy uh, and gained quite a quite an audience with that and had sort of a lot of institutional, like within the industry, backing um, and a lot of latitude to do more than people kind of coming up from a more junior position or a less like widely beloved position would have. And what's so interesting was this, you talk with a, a person named Susan Fail Smith, who was working on the program. And this incident where she overheard like a white executive dismissing the Huxtables as not representative of black life. Can you talk a little bit about that incident with Susan Fails Hill? Yeah, yeah. Um, Susan <laughs> said that, you know, she she heard the executive say essentially, this is a good show, but this family isn't black. They're white. <laughs> um, and when she pressed, she pressed and said, you know, what is it that makes them white? Because if you look at them, obviously the Huxtables are indeed a black family. Um, that the exec said, you know, look at the house that they live in, like, and sort of gestured at the idea that that kind of upper middle class comfortable lifestyle is inherently associated with whiteness. And, you know, Susan recalled saying that her grandmother or her mother grew up at a house like that in Brooklyn, you know, taking violin lessons while her sister took piano lessons and that some of the things that, that he was suggesting are exclusive to, you know, comfortable white families actually can indeed cross color lines. What do you think were, for all the the progress, the variation, the nuances that it was able to show about how black people lived in America, what do you feel like was still some of the baggage that it felt like it had to deal with? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it was interesting to go back and read surveys and, and studies done around the time that it was airing and see that there were white viewers who felt comfortable saying that because the Cosby's, you know, because the Huxables rather live this life and they're comfortable and they're on TV, that it gave the viewers, the white viewers, a sort of um, belief that the black people around them are struggling because of their own sort of personal lack of hard work or that because it's possible that the, that the Huxables can have this life that actually other black people in America are, aren't hardworking or are lazy. Um, and so this show simultaneously was this beacon of positive re representation for a lot of people um, who believed that um, upper middle class uh, family was important to have on screen and, and also had kind of this double-edged sword of making people think that income inequality, that racism, et cetera, weren't affecting people as deeply as they were and in some cases still are. We're talking with Hannah George, staff writer for The Atlantic. Her new cover story is most Hollywood writers' rooms look nothing like America. And you, our listeners, are joining us. And let me go to caller Teresa from Los Gatos. Hi, Teresa. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. And I'm so excited to hear this show. And I will be very um, excited to read the article also in The Atlantic. Um, I grew up in a multiracial family and quite poor. And I appreciated the sitcoms that didn't make uh, African-Americans look like all they did was shuck and drive and break into dance. I think it's really important to show how um, diverse uh, our society is. Anyway, I hope I can articulate this next next uh, comment as much as I want to. So, Okay, and you the, might need to speak um, up a little, just a touch, because there's some background noise behind you there. Oh, sorry. So the... Um, the part that you read regarding um, the Family Matters show and the father asking the son, well, are you sure, you know, questioning him about it. For me, it felt like he was first acting as a police officer, which I think is probably a really normal response. And he, by doing that, by the way, it made me and I think other viewers stop and think, have a minute to think about what, what it's like for someone to be pulled over for simply driving while black. And so it gave a brief moment of being able to stop and think about it and then be able to go, wait a minute, this is completely wrong. It happens all the time and driving while black is a real thing. So I thought it was a very um, intelligent way to approach the topic and give it more, more time, more screen time, more thinking time. So well, Teresa, yeah, well, thanks for registering your point on that. And I'd love to get Hannah's reaction to it just after the break. We're actually hearing the theme show from Family Matters now, and we'll have more talking about Hollywood writers' rooms and the importance of diverse representation in them. More Forum after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer Hannah Georges, a staff writer for The Atlantic, whose cover story is titled Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America. And it really looks at the progress and the limitations that Hollywood has made with regard to telling stories, who's telling those stories, and particularly telling stories about Black America. 
You can join the conversation if you have thoughts or questions or reactions as you're listening to this conversation. Do you remember a time that you saw a TV sitcom or a character that made you feel seen, especially as a Black person or as a person of color, someone who identifies as LGBTQ or someone who's differently abled? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Just before the break, Hannah, I'm sure you heard that call from Teresa. And what I really like about it is that I think it it also in many ways encapsulates the negotiation that we were just talking about there before the break, where it's the scene from Family Matters was able to get people to maybe stop and think who have not had that experience to stop and think and say, whoa, this is really troubling experience. But at the same time, there's a trade-off in terms of it being a really accurate representation of um, the Black experience or what Black writers would or what um, what uh, Felicia Henderson in that in that writer's room had to experience. What was your reaction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is how that opening scene or the the way that that conflict is introduced might work if it were on its own, or might work if the or how it might sound or play out if the ending were a little bit different. One of the things that's interesting to me about that episode is that it ends with Carl, um, you know, confronting the police officer who had stopped Eddie. And we as viewers kind of get the resolution of Carl siding with his son and finding out that, yes, this one individual officer was indeed operating from this sort of biased viewpoint. But it sort of ends there as an individual concern and an individual issue. Um, and I'm curious about what it would be, how much more light they could have shed if they'd gone a little bit deeper deeper on why it is that this is actually a systemic issue. Family Matters, was that a show that was, did it have white showrunners? It was conceived by white execs? It was. It was. I'm thinking about how we were talking about the Cosby show just before the break, which actually preceded Family Matters. But one of the things that was really interesting about the Cosby show and also its spinoff, A Different World, was that when it was led by a strong black voice, you did start to see some more changes and nuance um, in a way that that was probably pretty new to viewers. One of the things that I was thinking about was a section in your piece when you write about Debbie Allen and the difference that Debbie Allen made to the show A Different World and how it actually was able to offer things that The Cosby Show did not. Can you talk a little bit about A Different World and Debbie Allen's role, what what Debbie Allen did to it? Absolutely. So she came in. Um, she came in as an executive producer and director. And as Susan Fields Hill described it, she really shook things up uh, when she did. She was a graduate of a historically black college herself and had a lot of um, had a lot of per- personal experiences to draw from. And sort of crucially emphasized that this was a show set, you know, on a fictional college campus, a fictional historically black college campus, and that that environment when people are young and figuring themselves out and sort of learning their relationship to the world is an environment where they have to focus on the issues that are shaping these young people's lives and kind of can't do a more removed or quiet or sort of race neutral family story the way that the Cosby show had originally done. I want to play a scene from a different world. This is a scene that actually takes place in a public speaking class where Whoopi Goldberg guest stars as a professor. 
she gave the class an assignment to imagine and write their own eulogies and present them. And this clip begins with a character, Josie Webb, actually played by another guest star, Tisha Campbell. And Tisha Campbell is a, is a student in the class reading her eulogy. Let's listen to that. On Josie Webb's 13th birthday, her aunt gave her a book. Pick up those eyes and enunciate. Her aunt gave her a book that changed her life. It was a volume of Maya Angelou poems. After Josie read, and still I rise, she knew she didn't want to be a, a ballet dancer or a nurse. She wanted to be a poet. Stop fidgeting. You are a voice in this world. So, it was a proud day when she graduated from Hillman with a degree in English literature and high honors. That was the spring of 1992. By the following spring, Josie Webb had died of acquired immune deficiency syndrome, disease we all know as AIDS. I didn't get AIDS from a blood transfusion or by doing drugs. I got it by having unprotected sex with my boyfriend junior year in high school. I knew Frank was smart, fine, team star quarterback. Neither of us knew he was HIV positive. Lying on the grass on a humid night, looking up at the stars, you just know you're gonna live forever. Lying on the grass, it's impossible to imagine that five years later, you'll be lying in a hospital bed with pneumocystis pneumonia and a few years to live. Nothing like an AIDS war to teach you that youth is not immortality. More than anything, youth is the power to make choices. That was from a different world. And one of the reasons, of course, that stands out so much is because you wouldn't hear often that kind of material on primetime television. And then you wouldn't also hear it from a show that was predominantly about Black characters as well. You talked about how that show was taken off the air after it also addressed um, the uprising in L.A. in 1992. Do you think it was because people started to feel like it was going too far for the comfort of like white executives or a broader Yeah, that's audience? something that, that Susan um, gestured at when we spoke. She said, you know, she remembers convincing, uh, along with Debbie Allen, convincing the network to let them do this two-part episode, which opens the sixth season, um, and that directly addresses the uprising that followed um, the acquittal of the officers involved in the beating of Rodney King. And she remembers having an ominous feeling after that meeting, right? Like she, they technically won that battle, right? They were able to do the episode. Um, but she, <laughs> I remember her saying that they sort of felt like, all right, we've, you know, we've driven off the cliff here. Like we, we've pushed this um, past what, what we're going to be able to do. And then they were canceled at the end of that season. Even though they were canceled, there were, there was this sort of golden age in the nineties post, I think they were canceled in like 93 you saw shows like Living Single and, and, and Moesha and so on, as we talked about. What changed, though? Why, after that, did those kinds of shows seem to disappear? 
So after that, some of it was that the the networks and the smaller sort of weblets um, that were hosting those shows like UPN and the WB uh, merged to become the CW uh, and were shifting from targeting these really devoted, loyal, smaller audiences to the more common, you know, network uh, broadcast model of wanting to get mass viewership um, and wanting to focus on shows that could pull in lots, lots and lots of viewers and lots and lots of advertising dollars. And that meant, you know, squeezing out shows that were seen as being more niche. Hmm. And so I remember we started seeing a lot of things like The Sopranos and Mad Men. And even The Wire, though, it it had a lot of black actors was a show, as you point out, primarily by white writers that started to sort of become more what execs felt like would appeal to the broadest, broadest audience possible on the Georges in your view. Yeah, I think so. And I think that they're, um, you know, David Simon, who's the creator of the wire, um, had said that, David Mills, who's the, the late writer who was on the show, um, referred to himself as the lone Negro in that writer's room. Mm. And that quote really sticks with me for a lot of reasons, but one is just like the loneliness and the sadness inherent in it, right? That this is not just about what viewers are seeing on their screens and the ways in which that might accurately or not accurately accurately represent people's lives, but also that as a working experience, it can be just sad and demoralizing and lonely to be in a space where you have to carry that much. And what was the pay like? Um, there, there was a consistent disparity. Um, so in 2005, I believe, the, the gap in median annual salaries between white and black writers in television was around $15,000. Wow. Um, let me go to caller Zoe in Palm Springs. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Um, thank you for this conversation. It's really interesting. Uh, these are shows that I grew up loving to watch. Um, I am a white person, and this was kind of one of the main ways that I saw diversity when I was growing up uh, where I did. And I, I wanted to mention what you were talking about, about how people had internalized the idea that that um, every black family should be just like the Cosby's or something, and if they're not, then that's like a personal flaw of theirs. Um, that wasn't my experience, just because I don't really view things that way necessarily, but what I think I did internalize that I've been thinking about while listening to you is that because I didn't grow up somewhere very diverse, I thought that was just the norm for people, and I didn't really see until I got much older that, you know, it's not all like the Cosby's and like Living Single, which was my favorite show. I love Queen of the like I because of that show. Um, so it was just a it's different kind of internalization of things being all rosy and, and great. Um, maybe I missed those very special episodes. But um, yeah, I wonder if that's an issue that it's so interesting to see what was actually going on and going on behind the scenes on some of shows, which my favorite. Yeah. Well, Zoe, Zoe, thanks for that reflection. I heard you say Haunted George's that Living Single was your was your favorite. What it did you sure like was. about it Living sure Single? Was. Um, well, you know, I watched it when I was young and like the pinnacle of cool was the idea of living in a brownstone in Brooklyn with my friends and, you know, with my girls and like, it was just, I wanted that so badly. Um, so and I also thought it was like the funniest thing. Um, and they were just great character wise. Um, yeah. When I think about hearing Zoe talk about 
how those shows framed her. She actually did think that that's how most people live, like the Huxtables and, and, um, and, but I think, or that it was how everybody lived to some extent. And I think what's so interesting is that part of all the battles that happen with regard to, you know, should you show this family, um, that like the Huxtables, because then it can create this idea that racial progress has been achieved or, you know, but, you know, Sanford and Son, was that really something that also showed the complexity and diversity of um, Black experiences? And so much of those arguments just come from the fact that there are so few of, there are so few depictions available. Right. (laughs) That's why you end up arguing or, you know, really pushing and pulling at all of those kinds of representations. I feel like. Right, exactly. I mean, that's something that there was um, a critique of the Cosby show that uh, the professor Henry and, and critic Henry Louis Gates had written, I think in 87, um, if I remember correctly, 89. Uh, and he, you know, he quite seriously critiqued the show and said that the social vision of Cosby reflecting the minuscule integration of blacks into the upper middle class reassuringly throws the blame for black poverty onto the impoverished. So he both said that and was able to hold this really sort of complex critique of the show and then offered later that it isn't that representation itself that's inherently wrong, right? Like Cliff Huxtable is actually a believable character, but it plays this outsized role in popular culture because there are so few other representations, right? That when people don't have a wealth of different shows informing their viewpoint of the world and of black life in America, then it gets filtered through this one singular lens. And it also just puts a ton of pressure on the writers too. Absolutely, the show has to be everything to everybody and no one show can do that. Well, this listener writes, The Old Guard came out last year on Netflix and has been one of my favorite action movies ever since. It was directed by a black woman, Gina Prince-Bythewood, and it definitely had a wonderful impact on the film. I remember watching some cast interviews where they mentioned the difference or presence and that of many other women in the production made on set. We're talking with Hannah Georges. Hannah George has written a piece for The Atlantic called Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America. And it really does a comprehensive sweep of program, especially Black programming or programming about Black families or programs with Black-led casts, how they have been developed, how they've changed, and where we are now. And we were talking a little bit about sort of this period where a lot of shows with black led cast disappeared in the early 2000s, how did it start to come back? So, you know, the most notable, uh, the, the huge thing that happened in 05, which then kind of led to a bit of a sea change was the premiere of Grey's Anatomy, which is not what we would consider a quote unquote black show, but is a show led by and created by a black woman, Shonda Rhimes, who, you know, speaks so clearly and so authoritatively about not just what it's like to pull together a diverse ensemble cast, um, but what it's like to depict the world as it exists without um, 
without necessarily patting oneself on the back for doing just that thing. <laughs> uh, and, um, and she, you know, that, that premiered in, in 2005. And by 2014, she had three shows all airing back to back on Thursday evenings on ABC. There was, of course, Grey's Anatomy and then Scandal led by um, Carrie Washington in the role of Olivia Pope, which was the first black woman leading a primetime show since Julia, the show mm-hmm. that Diane Carroll had led, mm-hmm. um, which premiered in 1968. That's so quite, quite a span. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, so Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and then How to Get Away with Murder, which was a legal mystery led by Viola Davis. Um, and you know, that sort of block on television every Thursday night was among, you know, ABC's most popular window of programming. And that, people took notice of that. And right now we do have so many things, though I think it was really, really funny when you wrote, you're forgiven if you're tempted to think it's Black History Month every month when you <laughs> look at streaming shows and they've like aggregated all their Black content. So then, and the one page, yeah. Right? There, there was a bit of a dystopian or sort of Twilight Zone moment part when I, in the very early moments of working on this story uh, late last summer, when I was kind of looking around at different streaming platforms and different sites in general and realizing that so many places had their like Black Voices tab or their, you know, like Black Stories Matter page. And everything was kind of pulled together in this way that was like, okay, we've seen what's going on. We hear you. We think your voices matter. This is great. Um, And I, you know, that sort of made me curious about the the decisions behind that and, you know, where power sits and how power is distributed evenly, unevenly, you know, how that looks. Yes. Um, And while it's tempting, there has been some progress, but while it's tempting to think that there is a lot and it's being packaged for you in that way, you do quote UCLA's 2020 Hollywood Diversity Report. Can you just mention a couple of things that you learned from that that helped you realize that uh, what we think may be happening in the industry is not necessarily what's really happening in the industry? (laughs) Ooh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so less than 11% of broadcast cr- or of creators of scripted shows on broadcast are come from any underrepresented, any underrepresented racial group. Um, and 5% of all TV showrunners are black. <laughs> Five percent. So it's quite the five percent. That's yeah. not a huge statistic. <laughs> We're talking with Hannah Georges about Hollywood writers' rooms and the importance of diverse representation, not just in the stories we tell, but in who's telling them. And we'll have more with Hannah after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Hannah Georges is our guest today, staff writer for The Atlantic. Her new cover story is Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America. We've been talking about the 90 shows like Family Matters and Living Single and how those shows disappeared in the 2000s and how we're right now seeing what's considered a new renaissance in representation on especially streaming services. But through it all, Black writers have had to navigate treacherous terrain and in many ways continue to navigate them. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts and questions about TV sitcoms or characters that really stick out in your memory, times when you felt seen, especially as a Black person or a person of color or a differently abled person, or you're having questions, thoughts, reactions to what Hannah Georges has found for her piece. 
You can give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Marianne writes, my grandfather, born in Georgia in 1893, watched Julia, a very early show with a black actor, and it really changed his attitude, even if the show wasn't very evolved. TV is a powerful medium for changing what we think is normal or even possible. Hannah Georges, you you referred to Julia um, just before the break there, and uh, Diane Carroll, of course, was the star. Um, but what I also like about uh, this comment from Marianne is that it kind of gets at the whole point of why it's important to talk about this, that TV really is, uh, as you explicitly say in your piece, where we understand America and what we deem normal and what we deem American. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that there is any shared definition of what Americanness is or, or can look like, a lot of that has been shaped by TV. Well, uh, this listener writes, oh, I think the comment just got deleted, so we'll try to get that back up. But it was a question about why, ah, uh, here it is, a listener tweets, why do modern white viewers seem to love black struggle or black trauma storylines so much? There does seem to be uh, that showing up a lot um, in programming these days. And it was something that you addressed. Can you talk a little bit about the conversation around black trauma storylines? Yeah, I think that there can be some understandable fatigue around shows where the primary obstacle that black characters are facing is either racism or influenced by racism or hostility, um, you know, from the police or, or these systemic barriers, right? That there are black viewers who say we get enough of this in real life. Why is so much of this um, depicted in entertainment too? And I completely understand those concerns. I think sometimes I try to frame it for myself at least more about the purpose of trauma or difficulty on screen. Is it meaningful? Does it contribute to the story? Or does it feel like senseless? Does it feel like people are just being subjected to pain for no real reason? Um, with the understanding that, you know, when there's pain with meaning and purpose, that that can be actually beautiful television, beautiful storytelling. Um, but when it feels senseless or, or rote or done with almost a visual delight in the pain itself, that, that that's really hard to swallow. What have you been finding in terms of what Black writers and Black showrunners now, we, you talked about Shonda Rhimes and the, and the success that Shonda Rhimes has been able to have in the industry. What are you finding now about whether or not they're hitting some of the same issues around negotiated authenticity or other things that black writers have had to experience in the present day. Do, do those limitations still exist? What kind of form do you feel like they're taking that can easily be missed? Right. I think, I think they look different. Um, one of the things is that question around trauma and the question around telling stories that focus either exclusively on racism or whiteness, or um, even without those being present, telling stories that have to be gritty or, you know, like quote unquote urban is itself a kind of restriction, right? So there's, there's that one 
thing that I think it's helpful to zoom in on a little bit as a way of seeing progress is the treatment of criminal justice storylines um, and police brutality storylines does seem to have tangibly changed, especially um, in very, very recent years from, you know, the the Family Matters storyline, or that's something that Peter Saji, who um, in having worked on Blackish and, and with Mixedish, talked about feeling like the storyline that Blackish did um, about police brutality could really only have happened because things like the Family Matters one had existed prior. Let me go to caller Kevin in San Jose. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. What's on your mind? Uh, I had a question for your guest. Uh, speaking of shows that were, uh, I guess, labeled as comedy and had that one serious moment that everybody remembers, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And uh, Will Smith and his friends, I believe, were on a college campus and they had a run-in with some white kids that were on the campus, and they got in a fight. They were put in a jail cell, uh, and then it was kind of like, okay, you give me your perspective, you give me your perspective, and, of course, they each had their own spin on how nice they were being and how aggressive the other person was being. Uh, But the part of that episode that struck me the most, and really to this day, 48 years old, I can remember it, clear as day uh they sprayed uh spray painted the n-word on their car and i'm just wondering if your guest remembers that or how that may have come up in a writer's room Hmm. thank you kevin um interesting we also have daniel who writes thoughts on fresh prince of bel-air was that seen from a fresh was that seen from fresh prince I think I, I think I do remember that. I don't remember it coming up in my conversations with writers. Um, but I think I remember the, I think I remember the way that, um, Will looked like the look on his face when they were talking about, um, the, the experience of being like, of dealing with, with the police in particular. Uh, but it's not something that came up that much in my conversations. Although we did talk about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air more, more broadly. Um, our producers say it could have been a scene from a different world. Um, but again, you know, bringing up what I think is interesting about when we think about these shows in the nineties, bringing up really intense and, um, like moments when it was willing to kind of go there to some degree, though we've learned kind of the negotiation around that, is what you talk about, which is that a lot of black representation on television has been kind of cyclical, right? It's like it it, it goes through these periods of um, having and showing a lot of black led casts or trying to do black stories, them sort of disappearing. And then the question I think right now that we're all asking is as, you know, this cycles around to showing more experiences, more shows that um, have black casts, is, is there progress truly being made? Rebecca writes, growing up, we saw no Hispanic women or girls like our suburban middle class selves on TV or movies. Hispanic women were portrayed as low income, broken English speaking, primarily maids and girlfriends of drug dealers and over the top melodramatic emotional behavior that we would laugh at, but also feel a personal embarrassment and sense of despair. We're talking with Hannah Georges, Atlantic staff writer 
Her new cover story is most Hollywood writers' rooms look nothing like America, talking about the importance of representation in writers' rooms and in the stories that we tell, but also in who gets to tell those stories. As I think about all the different issues that we've raised here, Hannah, I'm thinking about Michaela Cole's um, Emmy acceptance speech yesterday. Yeah, because I feel like it touched. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I feel like it really touches on a lot of of this. Do you want to say a little bit about about your reaction to Michaela Cole's speech? Yeah, I think that there were there were so many things that were striking about that. Um, one, one that jumps out at me is that, of course, she is the first black woman, I believe, to win that specific Emmy. Um, and anytime you have a first black person, first black woman milestone, at, you know, in 2021, it feels obviously really bittersweet <laughs> because the idea that we still have to do these or that there is just the first now happening is, is daunting um, and unfortunate. And also that the other thing that really struck me is her her commitment to honoring the craft and the work and the story above circumstance um, is really beautiful and is something that I've just been sitting with. What do you mean by that? You know, she spoke about taking time and space for the story, about disappearing, um, about not feeling like you have to be visible at all times for that to be the correct metric of success. And I think that there's something about digging deep and letting yourself have space to do the writing and space to give um, the story air to breathe that was really refreshing to hear somebody talk about uh, at that, you know, in that forum. Well, let's hear a little bit of Michaela Cole's acceptance speech. Cole won for writing in a limited series, I May Destroy You. I just wrote a little something for writers really. Write the tale that scares you, that makes you feel uncertain, that isn't comfortable. I dare you. In a world that entices us to browse through the lives of others to help us better determine how we feel about ourselves and to, in turn, feel the need to be constantly visible. For visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success. Do not be afraid to disappear from it, from us, for a while, and see what comes to you in the silence. Anna Georges, can I ask you what your reaction was to the Emmys last night? There's been a lot um, in terms of, I think it was E. Alex Jung who tweeted the Emmys predictably chose white comfort um, and others who just pointed out how the winners, especially in the acting categories were all white. As someone who's thought so deeply about um, representation in television, how did you respond to what happened last night? Yeah, I think it's understandable to feel disappointed as a viewer, as a, as a critic, as a reporter, um, by the tremendous work uh, that artists of color, actors of color, et cetera, have put out in the last year or so not being recognized. I think I understand that there are a lot of power structures inherent to the entertainment industry that are just stacked against them. Um, But that it's also too simple to say, you know, that that doesn't matter because Emmys and other big awards have really tangible and meaningful consequences and, and benefits for people's livelihoods, for the opportunities that they can get later for, you know, who gets offered a deal to do another thing. And so these, they continue to affect the television 
the television landscape in all of these background ways too. And so knowing that it's hard to not take um, losses or, you know, not people not being recognized seriously. We're talking with Hannah Georges, staff writer for The Atlantic, about her cover story, Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to caller Modesto in Vallejo next. Hi, Modesto. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I've been wondering, you know, um, why, well, there's never been a whole lot of Asian um, uh, uh characters in, on TV. I mean, I remember the first time I saw one was Bruce Lee in The Green Hornet. And that was amazing for me that here was a person who was, you know, a main character, but TV treated him as just a sidekick. And even in programs where you would expect an Asian uh, main character like the Kung Fu show on the 60s, I mean, that was made for Bruce Lee. And yet, he wasn't in it. The other thing I wanted to say, too, is why there aren't a lot of uh, more interaction and interrelationship between uh, other people of color and and um, and, and black folks uh, on mm. TV. Since in reality, that's what really happens since because of the segregation and racism, most other people of color usually live in the black community or work in the black community or, you know, so that. Uh, people like her, the singer from Vallejo, who's part black and part Filipino, are probably there's probably more like her than there are black and white. I mean, you know, Modesto, uh, thanks. Let me get Hannah George's reaction to what you're saying to that. Yeah, I think that we see that people of color have, as a whole, been systematically left out of these kinds of storytelling, and that it's true that people live lives that are not exclusively segregated just within their racial categories. Um, I think there's been a bit of a slow shift in that, in that space too, in the sense that we have slightly more shows with diverse casts in, in this sense that like casts that are composed of multiple different races, multiple different characters who have different backgrounds, you know, within, within blackness and beyond, right? Like with, with other people of color, there's a slightly, a little bit more of that. Um, and I think Shonda's shows are uh, some of the best examples of that, but that, that seems like a space that there's, you know, especially a lot of room for improvement. Well, Dillian writes, I was so excited when I saw an abundance of TV commercials with black families that had previously just been white people. As I listened to your show though, I wonder if I'm duped into thinking that things were getting better. Was this just another example of retailers capitalizing on current events without things actually changing? I mean, in many ways, the parallel is what we're asking today, right? But I do wonder um, what you feel like, what do you think the terrain to navigate is now? What will it take to really see um, shows that allow for the full nuanced experiences of Americans broadly, right? um, inclusive to, to become the norm where shows are, are less, even when they do feature people of color, you know, have to have some characters depict a, a white lens or are in proximity to expectations around that. Um, 
and so on. Just some of these real nuanced but important fights that are being had. Yeah, I think for me, two of the I see those um, those metrics needing to change at sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum. One in the sense that the executive suites need to look not like what they look like now, <laughs> what they have looked like for decades. Um, and also that one of the metrics that I think is hardest to quantify and that can can be a real game changer is what happens when people are early career writers. Are early career writers getting support? Are they getting additional opportunities? And I think that if there are if there's more support baked in and more real opportunities that like include a living wage for writers um, at the early stages in their careers, then that'll sort of have um, a bit of a bottleneck effect as well. What's a show right now that you really like? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Insecure has been top of mind for me lately because it's coming back. <laughs> that's a bit of that's a bit of an easy a bit of an easy answer. But I was just thinking uh, about it this morning and how it's the the premiere of the final season is just about a month away. What do you think? What role do you think Insecure has played? Issa Rae too. Um, there's so much work that Issa Rae does that is background work, and it's you know giving people. Um, opportunities or greenlighting things or sort of playing a mentor type role. And it's hard to overstate how important all of that has been. And then in the on-screen representation, I think it's just been a delight for people to have a show that focuses on young Black women's friendship when they don't have everything else together. Well, Hannah Georges, really appreciate your piece for The Atlantic. Thanks so much for writing it. And thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And my thanks to Ariana Pale for producing today's segment. To our listeners for sharing their thoughts and reflections. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.